I'm going to pray what we just sang. So please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll be reading Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible word. So Father, show us Christ. Reveal your glory through your Son through the preaching of this word until every heart confesses that Christ Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen. So let's go straight to the text first. Follow what he's saying. Beginning with verse 14. Since therefore. The therefore heads it off, which means because of the family of Jesus. Jesus and his brothers and his sisters in verses 10 to 13. Therefore, we plunge into verse 14 forward. Therefore, since... The children share in flesh and blood. Therefore, that's the flow of it. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. Very simple. Because we are human beings, Jesus became a human being. Okay, now the question, why? For what purpose? The answer in the text is, in order that he may die as a human being. That's the next clause. That, or it's a hina clause in the Greek, a purpose clause, in order that through death. That's why Jesus became human, in order to die. But why did he need to die? The writer gives now a two-part answer in verses 14 and 15. He needed to become human in order to die so that he could accomplish the following. In order that 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the first thing. That is the devil. And secondly, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So in other words, Jesus, he came and he defeated the power of the devil. He took away his ability to destroy through death. And the effect is that the saved, in the context, those whom he's leading to glory are delivered from slavery to the fear of death. Okay, then, verses 16 and 17, they go on to explain in more detail why being the savior of human beings, not, not angelic beings, not spirit beings only, but of human beings, why that meant that Jesus must become one of us and die for sins. Verse 16, 17. For surely... It is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore, He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he became truly, fully human in every way in order to make a sin offering on behalf of the people to, to, to bring forgiveness of sins. So, 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 but why does he have to become human in order to be the high priest for us? The answer is at the end of verse 17. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that's because the, the offering he has to make in order to propitiate sins, to, to suffer the penalty for sins, to remove the guilt of the people, the offering he has to make is his humanness. His human life. That's verse 18. For because he suffered. When tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Okay. Let's do this one more time. What I'm going to do, I'm going to paraphrase. Go, I'm reaching back into the larger context in verse 10 through 17 and, and restate the flow of what he has said to us. So the, at least you can see the reflection of Pastor Joe's understanding of this text. Here we go. Because God has purposed to bring many of us to glory, and therefore it was fitting to have His Son suffer, 
Why? Because Jesus and those whom He is saving, they're of one family. We are His brothers and sisters. And therefore, because we are human beings, Jesus became a human being. He he became human in order to destroy the devil's power. And to set us free from the fear of death, which had been such an enslaving grip on us. The the way He destroyed the devil's power and sets us free is by means of His own death. In other words, for us to be saved from the penalty of sin, Jesus had to become fully human so that He could become the merciful, faithful high priest by offering Himself as a propitiatory sacrifice which removed God's just wrath from many that He is leading to glory. Okay, there's our passage. Now, there is way too much (laughs) in this paragraph to just blow through it in one week. Particularly right here, these two massive Christian gospel doctrines, the incarnation of Christ, And the propitiation that he made. So here's the plan. To pull back over today and next week, these two weeks, and deal with those two topics one at a time. And then the third week, come back to the larger context again, pull it all together and see how it is that Jesus' humanity and sacrificial death destroyed the works of the devil and delivers his brothers from that enslaving fear. Think about it. If we believe that what we're reading here, part of the Scripture here, book of Hebrews, really is the inspired Word of God, oh, then this shows how important doctrine is to our worship, to our walk, to our sanctification. So this morning, the incarnation. Notice verses 14 and 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So it's clear. Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became a human being. So how are we to understand this historical 
person is Jesus a man or is Jesus God well the answer is said simply not grasped but simply when we refer to the historical person, Jesus, whom we believers love, we mean He is just one person with two distinct natures. He is fully God, 100% God, fully 100% human. Okay, let's start with the first part. His godness. His, that's what we mean by the word divinity or divine nature. Okay, the context of the book of Hebrews so far has been crystal clear about the divinity of Jesus from chapter 1. So let me, let me just quote what we have already heard from chapter 1 concerning who Jesus is. Remember how it began. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also that is, through Jesus, God created the world. That's the Son. He, the Son, is the very radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact reduplication or imprint of God's essence, nature. And, and, and He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of His power. And in verse 6, And again, when He brings the firstborn, that is Christ Jesus, into the world, He says, Let all of God's angels worship Him. Verse 8, Of the Son, He says this to Him, Your throne, O God, is forever. Endeavor calls him God. In verse 10, you, Lord, in the context, it's Elohim in the psalm, God, referring to Jesus. Now, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Okay. He can't be more clear. Now, I want you to flip over to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. We're going to read verses 6 to 8 and notice the words, though, and form of God, before He becomes human. Though He, referring to Jesus, was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
being found in human form, nature essence. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So, before being born, being conceived in Mary, he existed in the Greek word is morphe, the nature, the essence, or form of God. That's who He is. That's His equality with God, in that sense, referring to the Father. He is the eternal God, meaning without beginning. He, in His divine nature, was before his historical conception and birth. He was the creator of all creation and is thus not a part of the creation. We, we know how the Gospel of John begins with these stunning words of Jesus' deity. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word, or the Logos, was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14. And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then in John 8, we get these stunning words. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why were they so angry at him that they wanted to kill him? I mean, is it because he just claimed to have seen and existed before Abraham, who lived 1,600 years before that? It's part of it, but what is more shocking and the reason they heard what he's saying is that Jesus, right in front of them, used the divine name about himself. Remember how God revealed it himself to, to Moses? You tell them, Moses, I am sent me to you. That, that's where Yahweh's built off of the, the verbal idea of being I am. Ego a me. I am. They wanted him dead. Now, 
As you read in the New Testament, normally the Greek word God or theos is almost, not, not always, but mostly if it's just referring to God, often it's clear in the context referring to the Father. But the following two texts, just hear them how theos or God is directly referring to Jesus. In John 1.18, right, where he's already been crystal clear, he goes on to say this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And of course, Thomas. And he wasn't shocked and almost like cussing. People have actually made that argument about Thomas. He touches Jesus' resurrected body and he says, my Lord. And my God. Okay, so the divinity of Christ, it is an essential part of what true Christianity is. It is an essential part of the gospel. And yet every century the church has been forced to deal with people who claim to be Christians and deny the divinity, the deity, the divine nature of the Lord Jesus. And it has nothing to do with motive. Many times they're very well-meaning. Like a preacher in the 300s named Arius and many colleagues that he had who started preaching more and more clearly that God's God, Jesus is utterly supreme. No, no, He is the first creation of all. No other human being can come into comparison. He's been created before all of them even. But you heard the word created. And what happens is... With, the, the rest of the church is constantly, we don't ever teach that. What are you talking about? And this, this is what forced within human history, yes, it has something to do with Constantine and all that too, and where we said, we got to deal with this issue because this is spreading. And that's why we have our first ecumenical council as Christians in the year 325 in Nicaea. And out of that comes what we call the Nicene Creed. It's dealing with the error that is cropped up. And I'm just going to quote to you this great creed that we confess. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence, usia, nature of the Father. He is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He's begotten, not made, being of one substance or essence with the Father. 
and by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day He rose again, ascended into heaven, and from thence He cometh to judge the living and the dead. And those who say, and this is how what they're dealing with, the end, they make it clear, their denial. Those who say there was a time when He was not, and He was not before He was made, and He was made of nothing, or out of another substance or thing, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned. Okay, so, the point is the very eternal, and He is eternal without beginning, being, or the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ is the very being nature of God. He is not merely similar to deity. He is deity. Okay. But then our passage says that this very God who without beginning, who has always been with never beginning to be, God, it says He became human. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. Jesus is not a man from eternity past. As is true of His deity and divine nature. He became a human being at a particular point through the incarnation, the enfleshment. That's what incarnation means from Latin carne, meat, and flesh. So just as much as it is false to deny Jesus' deity, it is equally non-Christian to deny Jesus' true humanity. The Apostle John in the New Testament had to combat that false teaching. And this, this is how he addresses it in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2 of 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. He means every teacher coming around in the church. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So by this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses 
that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John's refuting an idea that was floating around now in the church that would say Jesus just appeared to be human. But, but he really wasn't. In other words, this false teaching denied a central and crucial doctrine of Christianity. The incarnation of Christ. In that whole letter of 1 John, John is concerned with both natures. The two natures of the one person of Jesus. This is how he opens the letter that which was from the beginning. Remember, this is the same man who wrote the opening to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And that which was from the beginning, which we have heard through the physical ear gate, which we have seen through the physical eye gate, which we have looked upon and we've touched through the physical touch with our hands. In other words, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and then was made manifest us, the eternal one, he says, became physically visible. That's what he means. When he spoke, sound waves went into our eardrums. He was really there as we would touch. He's referring to the historical figure, the man, Jesus. So, the eternal one became human. Now, don't get wrong. Not that Christ, who is eternally God, not that He changed from deity, to humanity. He did not suddenly in conception in Mary's womb stop being God. No, but the divine person, the second person, took to his person another nature, the nature of the creation, a human nature. He added to his person a nature he never had before, true humanity, a real 
mortal body from conception, birth, and growing up, and developing a real human soul, mind, experience, emotion, limitation. Let's turn again to Philippians 2 and read it one more time. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, if you ask, what does it mean? And that word, kenosis, had become a controversy in about a century and a half ago. And it does not mean he stopped being God. He explains what he means. Emptied himself, and here's the modifier now, the participle, by taking the form. The emptying himself means... By his taking, you're going to see here, the new nature to his person and becoming one of us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human morphe. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He simply means the second person of the Godhead took to himself a true human nature. It does not mean he laid aside his divine nature or any of his attributes as if, as if the Son, who is eternally divine and thus omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, somehow stopped being God. That's not what it's teaching. That would be an impossibility. That would mean that God, the immutable one, mutated. The unchangeable one went, went through a change. And if that happens, the infinite one is not infinite now for Whatever time would even mean in that context, the world and the universe would cease to exist. The point is God cannot stop being fully God and still be God. That's why Orthodox, Biblical Christianity has always affirmed whether you can grasp it or not, and you can't, you can't comprehend it, meaning you cannot fully say, it makes complete full sense to my experience in life. But when we refer to our Lord Jesus Christ, we mean one person who, since the Incarnation, forever now exist as fully God and fully man. Not half and half. Okay, now 
This is meant for worship. It's meant as a Christian for your contemplation. Go there in your life, in your death. And now, here's three errors in your contemplation to avoid. Learn from history. When we're referring to the God-man, our Lord Jesus Christ, what we do not mean oh i okay i i think i figured it out pastor joe i was thinking about it and it's like okay i got this see we're physical beings and there's mary and a womb and and so who jesus is i mean he's already got a mind he's he he's he's the eternal son he already thinks and has uh, and can and can emote to, to according to his will so what that is is the divine nature then came into a human body. So, I mean, the, the person talking is really the divine nature. Just kind of like clothes. I got these clothes on my body. And he had clothes. That's how Paul talks about our, a body. A clothes upon his divine soul. Okay, if you go there, you might get a heresy named after you. A bishop in, in the 300s, Apollinarius, he was trying that. And now we have a great term called Apollinarianism. Heresy. It's not what we're referring to. Well, then you may say, oh, okay, I get it. There's a divine Christ. As you contemplate Jesus walking around Galilee. And the human Jesus. There's two persons walking around in that body. You, you might get a heresy named after you, like the Bishop Nestorius did. And we call it Nestorianism. It's not what we mean. Oh, okay, it's not that. It's not, I think I figured it out. When God becomes man in Jesus Christ, what we have is the divine nature coming in and mixing with the human nature. You chop it up a little bit, stir it around and make a soup, and we got this hybrid. We got this divine human nature of Christ. Well, your name is Eutychus and you're famous in history for Eutychianism. It's not what we mean. We mean one person, three natures. All three of those teachings through those men and those with them were finally dealt with at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and they were clear that they're, they're condemning all three of those, and confessing in the great creed of Chalcedon that we're referring to one person who exists with two distinct natures, and those natures do not 
mix with or change in any way the other nature. He is truly man and truly God, united in one person. And so when we contemplate the Lord Jesus, who since incarnation exists with and in two natures, united in His one person, you also ought not ever separate them in the sense of this. What Jesus experiences in one nature, it's true of the same person who holds both natures. For instance, when Jesus was hungry, okay, was God, meaning the nature of God, hungry? No. It's an impossibility. The nature of His humanity, the same person who is God, in His human nature, hungered. But, but the, that's true of the one person who is divine. He hungered in His... Does that make sense? When you contemplate the cross, was God killed on the cross? Well, it depends on what you mean. If you mean the nature of God, nature, not person. These are two different terms. If you mean the, the divine essence, nature of God Himself died, of course not. It's an impossibility. But the one who is fully God did die in, in His human nature. And he rose from the dead in his human nature. And he ascended to heaven in his human nature. And he will come back. And he is forever fully human and fully divine. Okay. It's my best shot. The incarnation was so absolutely necessary and foundational to understand next week's sermon. For him to make propitiation for sins. Now, as I close then, here's the meditation. Remember the larger context starting in the beginning of chapter 2 is we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. In other words, to what? Don't, he says, neglect such a great salvation and everything we're going into, he's defining that great salvation. Do not neglect this great salvation, which means, dear believer, think about it. Pray. Prayerfully think about it. 
know it. Embrace this Christ that the writer to Hebrews is unfolding, that the scriptures unfold. We have seen that Jesus has both a divine and a human nature, and that each nature in itself is full and complete, and that each nature remains distinct from the other nature, distinct though in the one person, Christ. And the things that are true of either nature are, are true of that one person were meant to marvel at this. We're meant to go deep with these truths simply because they go to the heart of who our Jesus is. The heart of what the gospel is. The heart of what Christianity is. So allow the truth of the incarnation to enhance the depth of your worship. So as we sing the glories of Jesus, you should marvel that you're worshiping God, the Creator, who is also now and forever your big brother and a fellow human being for your sake. And for your salvation and unto the glory of God. Because Jesus is human, we will see this. We saw it last week. The same experiences that we frail creatures experience, we know in a very intimate way He identifies with us. Because he is a man, he can come to our aid and sympathize as that wonderful, the text says, merciful high priest when we feel absolutely undone and overwhelmed and fearful in the weakness of our own sin nature where he never gave into temptation. We do, but he knows the temptations to its fullest extent. And we know he relates and smiles and he purchased us and our eternal, everlasting forgiveness. Because he's human, we can relate to our Savior, our big brother, the Lord Jesus. Never can we say, he just doesn't know what it feels like. No, he does. So no wonder the writer ends our passage in verse 18 this way. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are tempted. Father, continue that wonderful work of sanctification in us. The sanctification of you shining the light 
of the glory of God in our hearts and affections through the person of Jesus Christ.